Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on the show today, I'm going to be talking a little bit about exomoons and some of the news you might have heard about a potential first detection of one. Hannah's going to be talking with special guest Sarah Hurst. And Andrew's going to be covering all of the recent exoplanet goings on in the news and detailing the exoplanet ExoCup which is going to be coming up in the end of this month. So stay tuned for that. But first, let's introduce the Exocast family. So I'm Hugh Osborne, and I'm a postdoc in France at LAM, studying um, transiting exoplanets specifically for the Plato Space Telescope. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I'm a postdoc at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, and I characterise the atmospheres of giant exoplanets. And I'm Andrew Rushby, a postdoc at the University of California, Irvine, studying the climates of small planets in the galaxy. So how's everything been going? You just moved, didn't you, Andrew? I did. Yes, I've been in, I've been in Irvine for about uh, a week and a half now. It seems like a really nice place, very sunny and warm. Uh, and uh, UC Irvine itself seems like a, a great place to work. So um, I'm here with uh, Professor Almore Shields, and we're going to be studying... Uh, as I said, the climates of small planets in the galaxy using a suite of, of different classes of models, some 1D photochemistry, some 3D stuff. So I'm really excited, uh, really excited to get going. Have you been forced to buy a car yet? Oh, yeah. California, you have to have a car. Yeah. I mean, Andrew, you managed to get by in two years in, in San Francisco without a car. So I'm wondering if two weeks in L.A. has forced <laughs> you to get one. <laughs> I did pretty well, I thought. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to get one here. Uh, fortunately, <laughs> I live like 15 minute cycle from work, so it's not too bad. Oh, perfect. Uh, but I still want to get around and explore a little bit. So, yeah, I've got to live that SoCal, get the SoCal vibes. Uh, oh, get, myself a, get myself a car. <laughs> a Mustang? Or... <laughs> <laughs> no, something, uh, something ethical. Something, something you know. practical as well. Yeah. Ethical, practical. You know, I think I've done, you know, two years without a car in, in California is pretty good. So I've earned some, yeah. I've earned some, some comfort. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, that's basically been my month. But um, yeah, what about you, Hannah? Uh, I've just been working on, on papers this month. We, we got a review back and we've just submitted that one again. So I'm looking forward to getting that one done and uh, hopefully going to submit another paper by the end of the month. So just been doing the science thing that we're oh. supposed to be doing. Hannah, you're prolific. You are prolific. <laughs> Look forward to reading those and reporting on them in the news, maybe, in the future. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see we'll how see. generous the reviewers are feeling. It's always the way, isn't it? I'll look really, really productive in my 2019 report. I think my, my 2018 looks a bit slow. It's just been preparation for lots of different things that I'm hoping will end up being finished in 2019. So what about yes. you, Hugh? It's been back in France now for a month, getting on with stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I was observing for a, a week, which was quite, well, you know, <laughs> as you, observing is these days. You've talked about how bored you get on observing before. It's, I think we've got to have a more is, positive I, vibe. The good thing about this, the OHP, is that like at least there's um, there's someone with you. It's not just like observing alone, but they are French and, you know, kind of... <laughs> <laughs> My French isn't good enough for a, an all night long conversation with, with the technician. So, uh, so yeah, no, but it, it was fun. And I just, I just basically worked. You know, I, I, I read a tweet, I think, that it was um, your most used collaborator is you from six months ago and you didn't and you're not responding to emails. Right? And that's been my last two weeks. It's like, what was I doing before I went to the US? And and why was I coding this way? And what am I trying to like actually do again? <laughs> and so I'm just redoing things I did six months ago, which is slightly annoying. But. I wonder if um, if regular listeners could trace the uh, gradual decline in your enthusiasm for observing <laughs> from Exocast 1 all the way to Exocast oh, yeah. 29. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we probably could. Let's, let's not do that. Uh, I mean, if we have an avid listener that wants to do that, feel free, but I'm not sure it's a good <laughs> idea. Two weeks in Chile is amazing, but but um, a week in October in like rainy France is not so nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Okay, I think it's time that we got on with the show. Uh, and this month we are welcoming our special guest, Professor Sarah Hurst from Johns Hopkins University. And Sarah specializes in laboratory sim simulations of planetary atmospheres and is most famous for her work, I would say, on Titan hazes. Uh, looking at the measurements from the Cassini spacecraft, the Hudgens lander, and uh, generating those haze particles in the Hearst Phaser Lab at Hopkins, which is here in Baltimore. So uh, welcome, Sarah, to Exocast. It's fantastic for you to join us. And I know you're not in you're not at Hopkins at the moment. Where are you? I'm uh, I'm actually on sabbatical this semester, so I'm currently in Colorado. Excellent. And you, you worked in labs in Colorado before. Yeah, so I did my postdoc at the University of Colorado. So um, some days a week I'm actually sitting uh, in the desk that I used as a postdoc, but that's not where I am today. <laughs> so could you explain to us a little bit about what Horse Lab is and uh, what you guys actually do there with the equipment that you've, you've put together? Sure. <laughs> I, I, at least I, I can mean, try. Uh, yeah, I mean, just a nice <laughs> Not a small question in, at in all. In like two sentences. Just, yeah, go for it. What, what is the, the entire world of, of, of Sarah? The, the, the one tweet uh, summary of what we do. <laughs> um, I will say Twitter is good practice for trying to not be quite so verbose. But um, no, we, uh, we spent... Um, 2014 and 2015 building uh, an experimental setup that we designed to try to be as flexible as possible to study as many atmospheres um, as possible, both in the solar system and outside of the solar system. And so we have a chamber that we fill with gases and we can use basically any you know mix of gases that we want. So it depends on what atmosphere we're trying to simulate. If we were doing Titan, we would do nitrogen and methane and maybe carbon monoxide. Uh, if we're doing Venus, we would do CO2 and maybe sulfur dioxide. And so we can do all of those different types of gases in whatever um, ratios we want. And then we can also control the temperature. And so the way we built our experiment, we can run anywhere from 90 Kelvin, um, which is just around the surface temperature of Titan, uh, all the way up to about 800 Kelvin. And so that lets us um, cover basically any atmosphere uh, in the solar system and also a large range of exoplanet atmospheres that we might be interested in studying. And so once we have that recipe put together, um, then we put energy into the, the chamber and we can use either uh, energetic electrons from a plasma or photons from a lamp. Um, and that breaks up the little molecules that we start with and starts chemical processes. And so we're trying to figure out what happens next. Um, we look at the new gases that get made. If there's a solid that gets made, we look to see how much and what color it is and how big the particles are and what it's made out of and, and whatever else. Um, and then kind of go from there. It depends a lot on what the question is that we're trying to answer, um, which varies pretty dramatically depending on which <laughs> atmosphere we're trying to study in the first place. Right. And I, I think a lot of our listeners would be really interested to know some of the most recent results that have come out of the lab where you've been doing experiments across these wider, these higher temperatures to look at more kind of super earth type worlds and what what hazes might be formed there in in some of those there were some really interesting results in terms of the amount compared to what we would expect for solar system bodies could you explain a, a little bit about that yeah so we got a couple of proposals funded over the last few years to look at a type of planet that we don't have in the solar system and so it hasn't really been explored experimentally very much um, at all. In fact, I think we're the first ones. And, and those are planets that are larger than Earth and smaller than Neptune, um, like you said. And so it's a really interesting phase space for us because um, the potential atmospheric compositions and temperatures are quite different than a lot of um, what we see in the solar system. So we started running these experiments and the temperature range that we've looked at is uh, from 300 Kelvin uh, actually up to 800 Kelvin, although the 800 Kelvin experiments are currently in progress, so they're not published yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we were looking at um, atmospheric compositions that went all the way from um, being very hydrogen dominated, um, which would be kind of similar to the gas giants in our solar system, Jupiter and Saturn, um, all the way up to 
uh, atmospheres that are um, very oxidized, so CO2-dominated atmospheres, um, which in some ways might be similar to um, the atmosphere of Venus, for example. And so when we ran those experiments, one of our very first questions, because nobody had ever done this before, was just, is it going to make any particles? Yeah. Uh, what if so, how many? What happens? <laughs> what, what happens? Just anything. Um, <laughs> Everything and, that you find out from this is going to be something new. So that's yeah. that's a really exciting starting point. I mean, it was it was super fun because it was just like, okay, well, we're going to put this together. We're going to push the button. We have no idea what's going to happen when when we push the button. And um, for the for the the kind of core group in my in my lab that were running these experiments, we'd been doing Titan um, for a long time in a lot of different. Um, labs in different places in the world and you know we kind of know what to expect from the Titan experiments now and we're asking very detailed questions with those experiments and so it was kind of fun to change gears and just be like well we're gonna push the button and find out what happens Um, we have no idea how this is gonna go uh, which is um, which was a nice change of pace and and what we ended up um, finding out, which I think, you know, wasn't necessarily surprising to us, um, although the way in which it happened was surprising, is that, you know, across this set of experiments, um, there was a total of nine experiments um, that we did. Uh, we found that there was a big, big range of answers for what happened. <laughs> um, but one of the things that we found that was most surprising is that um, we didn't necessarily think that any of these atmospheres that we were simulating were going to be like really optimal for particle formation. We tend to think of the conditions for Titan um, as being, you know, one of the most optimal sets of conditions you could really find for making particles, um, which is why Titan is so hazy. Mm. And actually two of the nine experiments that we ran um, produced more particles than our normal Titan experiment in our lab. And so that was a huge surprise to us and we're still trying to sort that out but we found a big range of of particle production rates and um i think that's not surprising but it's good news uh in terms of um thinking towards observations with james webb because you know not every atmosphere for this type of planet is going to be hazy and so that means that we will have the opportunity to do some really great atmospheric composition measurements um, without having to worry about the particles getting in the way yeah, I mean, one of the, the things that was really exciting about that was one that a couple of these produced such high rates of particles, like you said, but it was the fact that, you know, not everything is doom and gloom. There isn't going to be a huge amount of opacity sources in every single planet we look at. There's this big range that we've got to explore. So I, I think that was one of the most exciting things that I took from that experiment was we have some solid ground truth to compare these two. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that's the, the lab data is so important for. Yeah, I mean, we're really excited too because I think, um, you know, these these experiments are just experiments and we can't perfectly replicate the the actual atmospheric conditions. That's It's impossible for a lot of reasons. And so we don't even necessarily, you know, try to make things perfect. And so one of the things that we're really excited about for exoplanets is finally getting observations that span a much wider um, phase space uh, in terms of what planetary atmospheres are capable of and actually seeing in real life which ones have haze and then looking back at the lab experiments because we want, you know, at some point um, in the future to really be able to, you know, take a small number of uh, parameters about a planet, maybe, you know, stellar type and distance from the star and gravity and, you know, atmospheric composition or something like that and, and be able to predict whether or not there would be, you know, a thick haze layer, a thin haze layer, no haze layer at all. Um, and I think we're pretty far away from being able to do that right now, actually. And so the the observations that are, that are happening now and that will happen going forward of these exoplanet atmospheres are really going to be key to actually building that theoretical framework for how planetary atmospheres really um, work in terms of haze formation. Yeah, I completely agree with that. (laughs) We've got such a long way to go on both fronts, but everything, they inform each other. It's in a big kind of loop and we need to try and just keep asking questions and seeing what answers we get and whether or not we can use each each of those different methods to work out i mean it's it's not only the lab stuff and and the observations but the theoretical models as well are missing quite a right lot. 
Um, and it's making sure that we're using all the information we can to, to build up on that. So the lab stuff is so important for that because we, we have been missing it for, and we do miss it for a lot of the, the phase space we cover with exoplanets. So it's really exciting there. But I want to bring it back to some of the work that you've done on the solar system as well, because the solar system is a fascinating array of planets and it covers a big phase space as well. Um, and you mentioned Venus and Titan. Those are kind of the extremes on these on these <laughs> formation. Like for any kind of planet, you've got Venus. It's very, very hot. It's sulfuric acid. It's carbon dioxide rich. And then you've got Titan, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, methane rich atmosphere and still nitrogen based, right? Uh-huh. So how did those two compare to each other? And is there a distinct way you can tell them apart? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the solar system does certainly cover a broad range of, of atmospheric phase space, although, you know, even with, I mean, Venus, Venus is an example that people tend to think of as being, you know, pretty extreme, and in some ways it is, it is very extreme. <laughs> um, but the thing with Venus is that even though the surface temperature is extremely high, um, most of the atmosphere is actually quite temperate. And so the region of Venus's atmosphere that we've been simulating in the lab is actually 200 Kelvin. So we have to cool the gases when we simulate um, Venus's atmosphere rather than heating them, which is confusing to a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, in that sense, we still, um, you know, we still don't have a huge range of, of temperatures um, to explore in terms of where we think this chemistry might happen in atmospheres and um, and kind of the same thing with the with the composition space. Even though we do have, um, you know, a, a pretty broad range of compositions um, in the solar system, the the Venus Titan example is great. Venus is CO two dominated. It's very very oxidized atmosphere, and Titan's atmosphere is pretty reduced. It's you know it's got methane, it's got nitrogen, um, very little oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, part of the reason those two atmospheres are like that now is because they've had, you know, four and a half billion years of evolution to modify them. Um, and so, you know, that's another thing that we have to kind of consider that, that isn't variable really um, much at all across the solar system is that, you know, what we see now has been happening um, and being modified over the age of the solar system for all of the different planets that we're looking at. And so, you know, things have happened to those atmospheres for quite a bit of time. And, um, and that's one variable that we can't change in the solar system. And so that's another reason why extrasolar planets are exciting, um, because we'll be able to also look at newer atmospheres, older atmospheres, um, everywhere in between. It's something that most people don't think about is that time axis. And I know it's something that Andrew's worked on a lot. So, uh, uh... Oh, well, I, I thought this was a great segue, actually. It was, it was, it was being set up perfectly for me because I was going to ask um, less about the solar system in space, but the solar system in time, because I know the extremely prolific uh, Hearst Lab has also published on the early, uh, on the early Earth uh, and particularly right. the kind of mildly oxidizing uh, atmosphere of the... Um, of the what's it the proterozoic neoproterozoic yeah we're studying? neoproterozoic yeah. yeah so folks who aren't um that familiar with the early earth's history it was likely much more reducing uh back then and there was a, fa a stage at which it became moderately oxidizing um so oxidizing atmospheres from my understanding aren't great for haze formation but this is kind of an interesting regime where where maybe uh you could get some haze formation so um sarah if you could just maybe uh, very quickly summarize the kind of early earth results that you recently published that would be great yeah so one of the things that has kind of become a thread through all of the stuff that i've worked on is is an interest in in what oxygen uh, containing molecules do in terms of haze formation and so i started out working on carbon monoxide with titan and moved through co2 and water with the with some of the exoplanet experiments and um ended up actually getting all the way to the other extreme um which is molecular oxygen like we have on Earth. So one of the things that, that I was interested in is what happens when there are small amounts of molecular oxygen in Earth's atmosphere. So right now, Earth's atmosphere is not fav favorable for, for haze formation like we think of in Titan's atmosphere. We get mm -hmm. smog, which is a similar sure. process, mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's the fault of humans, and it's also very localized. Mm -hmm. um, 
but we think the early Earth had a haze layer for various reasons. And I wanted to know what happened when oxygen first started going into the atmosphere when it was there in small amounts. And so we started running experiments, which I think are still the only ones that have been run with molecular oxygen. Um, and when we put tiny amounts in, it was really interesting. The production rates changed. Um, actually, with a small amount, the production rates went up first. Um, and then as we increased the amount of oxygen, it started to go down, which was what people expected. Sure. Um, the composition also changed. And in fact, um, nitrogen started participating more actively in the chemistry, which is interesting for questions about the, the evolution of life during that period of Earth's history, because Earth really, um, Earth needs nitrogen. Life needs nitrogen. <laughs> Earth doesn't care. Earth doesn't, Earth doesn't need anything as far as anyone's concerned. Um, Earth is just going to do whatever it's going to do. Um, and then the other thing that happened was the color of the particles changed, um, and they became quite reflecting, whereas before they were actually pretty absorbing, and, and that matters for the temperature structure of the atmosphere. So um, it was really interesting uh, to us because that means, you know, during this period when a lot of things were changing, oxygen was starting to fill the atmosphere. There was a lot of interesting things going on with plate tectonics and evolution of various forms of life. Um, the atmosphere was probably also changing pretty dramatically in terms of um, the presence of a haze layer and the effect of the haze layer on the temperature structure and then what material would actually come down onto the surface from that haze layer. And so, um, you know, it's possible that, that, that the haze was really important during that period of Earth's history and that was something that people hadn't really explored before. And so we were pretty excited to see that, that interesting things did happen when you put oxygen into the experiment and it didn't just completely shut off the chemistry the way everyone thought it was going to. Yeah, it was it was a really interesting result because a lot of the the haze focus for the early Earth has been in the very early Earth, you know, the the yes. Archean, yeah. um, because of its effect in maybe keeping things a little bit toasty um, when when it should have really been frozen. But um, yeah, the the haze in that oxygen transition is is super interesting. So some great work there. I was actually wondering about that early Earth period because, I mean. I don't know much about haze, but I know that on Titan, the haze is amino acids, right? So could hazes, hazes on the early Earth help kind of build up this prebiotic chemistry and help life form? Is yeah, that... I mean, that's a, that's a big outstanding question. I think we know now from lots of different people doing work on the origin of life and also studying um, the solar system that, you know, we see these building blocks of, of life, amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins and nucleobases, the building blocks of DNA. We see them all over the place. We see them in comets. Um, you can make them in, in um, experiments with hydrothermal vents. We make them in our, in our haze formation experiments. And so, you know, it seems like there's lots of different possible sources for that material. And we don't really know if one of those sources was the most important or if, you know, everything was, was important in some way or at some period of time. And so um, that's really one of our big, I would say, outstanding questions at this point is, you know, where did those first sets of molecules come from and, and what did that um, mean? But for me, I think even if, the, even if the material wasn't key necessarily in the origin of life, um, if there was a haze layer, there was certainly organic material that was getting deposited on the surface mm -hmm. and in the ocean. And so, you know, maybe it wasn't key for the origin of life, but it could have played a role in the evolution of life or um, the way that life may have, you know, the pathways that it chose to went go down or something like that. And so, um, you know, I think that's a really big outstanding question that we have about the role of haze on the early Earth. Uh, maybe it didn't matter at all. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna finish off with one perhaps tricky question. If you could simulate any atmospheric situation in the lab at all, what would you want to do? If it's possible or not, it can be completely impossible to do. But what would you most want to do? That's a that's actually a really hard question. I don't think anybody has ever asked me that before, and I don't know that I've ever um, really thought about it. Um, we, we discuss sometimes trying to build a, a more complicated experiment, which would require a much bigger chamber um, that would allow us to do a better job of recreating the energy um, available in an atmosphere by kind of doing multi-step, um, you know, introduction of various energy sources or multi-step introduction mm -hmm. of various gases or those types of things, which I think... Um, is a nuance that probably won't sound very interesting to, to <laughs> the people listening um, to, to this, unfortunately. So, you know, uh, there's there's that which might be the actual answer. Um, Adding that time but, variable, that time access to everything. 
Yeah, well, and the other thing, too, um, for me is that I would be really interested in doing Pluto, and we've done some, like, Pluto-related work, um, but we've not actually really focused much on Pluto, and so that's kind of a, a bummer for me. I think I think Pluto is a, definitely something interesting to go into because it does the the images from New Horizons showed this kind of haze layers in the atmosphere so that's certainly something new. Yeah, well and it's um you know it's kind of this in between phase space because it's you know similar in composition to Titan but the atmospheric pressure is very different the temperatures are different and it's much farther from the sun so the photon flux is lower and so I think there's some really interesting comparative planetology to be done there um which is one of the reasons that we're really interested in in working on it. Awesome. Well, hopefully you get to it in the future. Uh I Big thank you to uh, Professor Sarah Hurst for joining us on Exocast today. And we will talk to her again later when she adopts a planet into our little Exocast family. So thank you, Sarah. Thanks. So next we're going to hear from Hugh all about some, well, recent news, I suppose, but all about exomoons. Yeah. So obviously exomoons have been pretty uh, widely covered in the last month, so I thought I'd go through what an exomoon is, how we can find them, and whether we've already found them. Um, but first, I mean, we've already heard about the moons of our own solar system, but I thought I'd I'd cover a little bit about that, because, I mean, anyone who's who's looked through a telescope at Jupiter, or maybe even Saturn, has seen those those pinpricks of, of, of bright, reflective ice traveling along and around those the giant planets in our solar system. And I think anyone who's who's seen the images that have been back from Voyager and Galileo or Cassini, uh, anyone would, would say that these moons are some of the most dynamic, interesting and beautiful places in our solar system. Oh, yeah. And, well sorry? Definitely. They're amazing. Yeah. I love a good moon. You know, as, as we already heard, there's the, the hazy atmospheres over the ethane lakes of Titan. There's the vast subsurface oceans of Europa and Ganymede, the sulfur volcanoes of Io, the ice volcanoes of Triton, the cliffs of Mimas, the geysers of Enceladus, the mare of Earth's moon, you know, they go on and on. And in fact, they, they, there's a lot of moons we can talk about as well. You know, when you think about a spherical terrestrial body, you know, like a like a sphere of ice and rock and, and, and iron, you know, the, the, the moons that orbit our gas giants in our solar system basically outnumber terrestrial planets. So um, so there's probably a lot of them out there, right? I mean, we, we've found thousands of exoplanets now. And, and, and if you look at the, the, the giant planets in our solar system and even the smaller planets, then we're pretty sure that some, if not most of those, are orbited by their own moons. Um, and, and another reason that moons are so fascinating is that you could you could picture a, a reality where Jupiter, rather than the Earth, ended up at 1 AU. And in that sort of universe, um, it's not impossible to think that the great European or Ganymedean oceans would be home to life, much like our own ocean is currently. So so there's a lot of reasons that, that finding moons and, and exploring moons is, is a pretty interesting thing to do. Um, so how do we do that when we're looking for moons around extrasolar planets you know um the problem is kind of the same when you're trying to find these as when you're trying to find small planets so moons are extremely small you know by definition they're smaller than the planets they orbit far smaller in fact in our solar system moons are less than one percent of of their planet's mass and less than about 25 percent of their planet's radii and in fact the extreme in both of those cases is the earth's moon which is is the biggest moon relative to to the host um but despite those kind of uh, problems in, in how we find moons, there are some, some ways around that. So one such avenue is to look for and look for moons around directly imaged planets. So these tend to be young and hot gas giant planets, which are separated from their stars by a large amount that we can actually see and image these planets. So that means we have photons coming from the planets and we can treat the, the planet as effectively a star and, and search for moons around the planet in the same way we search for planets around um, stars. So this could be things like radial velocities or astrometry, both of which are capable of measuring the gravitational pull and push of an orbiting body. And a couple of papers by Vandenberg and Eagle have covered um, how we might go about finding exomoons that way. Transits themselves could do it. So moons might block the planet's light. And if we're observing just the planets, then we'd see these repeating uh, periodic transits, or even the phase curves of the moons. So uh, as we see in our own solar system with Io, exo exomoons could be tidally heated and glow really strongly in the infrared. And as these 
glowing spheres of uh, infrared light orbit their planets, um, that infrared light would change with the phase of that planet and we would see imprinted onto the signal of the planet and maybe even the signal of the planet and the star, we might see a uh, changing phase curves. And this was uh, proposed in a paper by Duncan Forgan, who we had on in episode nine, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, a SETI special. Yes, he <laughs> doesn't just do SETI. Um, and then slightly st- separate from those ideas, but staying with the sort of young stars, what we could do is, as well is we could infer the presence of exomoons if we see giant exo rings around the planet. So these, um, so we think that moons, uh, including those in our solar system, form from a big uh, dust disk around the young giant planets. And this dust disk, like the dust disk around the sun, coalesces into bigger and bigger blocks and spheres until moons form. And when it does that, it will guide the dust into a series of gaps and rings, which are then indirect markers of the presence of exomoons in those gaps. And in fact, there's a system called J1407, um, which was discovered in transit in front of a young star. And it seems like there's a ring system around a small planet or brown dwarf size um, object. And that could be an uh, indirect example of, of exomoons that we, can't, we know are there, but we can't actually see them directly. They're waiting for that one to transit again, aren't they? Yes, and there was a paper out, and they they've ruled out um, quite a large range of periods of the the, the transit, like the repeating transit. Yeah. So I think it's looking more and more that it's not attached to its star, which is an interesting well, thing. I, I mean, if that's another the thing case. that's interesting in terms of that disk stuff is that all of our giant planets in the solar system have rings. It's not talked about enough, I, I think. Saturn's got an amazing ring system, but Jupiter's got rings, Uranus has got rings, and Neptune's got rings, and. That, that dust disk, like you said, is really important for this moon formation and, and the theory behind all of that. Yeah, and I mean, these, these rings we're talking about, like you look at Saturn's rings and there's something like one one Saturn radius away from the surface, they have the rings. But these these rings we're talking about would be hundreds of, of planetary radii away. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's not unfeasible to think that we should be able to find them. Yeah. Um, so I hear what you're, you're saying, though. What about those 3,000 older, smaller, closer-in planets that we already know about? You know, we only know a handful of directly imaged planets. So can we find moons around uh, transiting planets? And we can. If we can measure a planet's transits precisely, and if we have enough transits, then we can go about trying to find exomoons around things like Kepler planets. Um, one thing that helps us here is the knowledge that the centre of mass of the planet-moon system is a thing that orbits in a circle around a star. The planet itself, if it's orbited by a large moon, is going to move in a kind of coil fashion, like like drawing a spirograph. A spirograph still a thing? Yeah, they got to be. Spirographs are <laughs> a fundamental so. part of childhood. I agree. Um, but yeah, like drawing a spirograph around a circle, that's the kind of pattern the planet itself, the centre of the planet, would, would have if it's orbited by a moon, rather than just a smooth circle. And that kind of uh, changing speed and position leads to two effects that you might be able to measure in transits. So these are called transit duration variations, where the speed of the planet across the star changes because of a moon, and that speed means that it it, it takes shorter or longer during uh, the transit. Or transit timing variations, where the position or the time that the planet transits its star is either early or late, depending on where the moon is in its orbit. And in fact, um, you go back to before the Kepler mission, and uh, David Kipping predicted that this effect would have uh, would be able to search for Earth-sized exoplanets for about one in six of the Kepler targets would be bright enough for this. So that's 25,000 stars. And given there's 3,000 uh, Kepler planets known, you would expect maybe to, to be able to search for Earth-sized exoplanets, which isn't unreasonable, around maybe 1,000 of those, or 500 of those, if I do the maths correctly. <laughs> And actually, in 2015, Kipping went back and looked at a small number of those best candidates, something like 25, and uh, looked for these these signals, the TDVs and the TTVs. And despite being sensitive to Earth-mass moons, one of the problems, I think, with uh, using transits to find exomoons is that transits are really biased to close-in planets. And we know that the closer in you get to a star, the less stable and the less likely you are to form exomoons. So um, you kind of have to look for these warmer longer longer orbital period planets to actually find exomoons, I would imagine. Um, and even down to twice the mass of Ganymede, none of these candidates, actually, none of these planets had any sort of signal. Um, you can also do it 
in transit, the same way you might look for small planets by looking for the direct transit, you know, the dip in light you get as a small um, Earth-sized body passes in front of its star. One problem with this is that if you're looking for a moon that's orbiting a planet, then the moon is actually moving around a lot more. So individually, these shallow dips that they will they will um, put in the light curve do not happen in the same place relative to the planet each time. They move around, and if you're looking um, at an average transit over all of the the different orbits you've searched, then that moon's transit gets smeared out and it gets to, it becomes like a shallow divot around this primary transit and that becomes a lot more difficult to find. And in fact, this was used as well by Alex Tichy and David Kipping and they initially, in fact, when they tried to search for exomoons just using individual transits, um, David Kipping s- suggested that one in four of the Kepler planets would have erroneously been concluded to harbour exomoons due to residual time-correlated noise in the Kepler data. Um, But using better data and using a different technique, they stacked all of these, about 300 good candidates together, and looked at whether the average of all of the exoplanets would show this divot around transit and show that there were maybe uh, Galilean-like moon systems around the average gas giant. Um, Again, they didn't find any signal, but using this they were able to say that fewer than about 40% of Kepler's warm and giant planets host Galilean-style moon systems. Um, But in the course of this analysis two years ago, Tichy and Kipping also spotted something else, a single Kepler planet, which seemed to have a stronger exomoon signal than any of the others. It was about a four-sigma outlier, so not really a detection, but, but a strong candidate at that point. And this was Kepler-1625b, a Jupiter-radius planet on a one-year orbit around a faint giant star found by Kepler. And those fits they they performed suggested it might be encircled by a Neptune-mass moon, or Neptune-sized moon, far larger than any moon we'd expect to find from formation models or from our own solar system. Um, Improbable, but, but not impossible. So what does a scientist do when they have a juicy but not yet confirmed result? Well, get more data. So they went to Hubble and they asked for 26 orbits, so it's about 40 hours of Hubble staring at this star during the course of one transit. And it's the result from those observations which you've probably read about in the last month. So let's take a quick and sceptical look at that paper. So, with their 26 orbits of HST, they performed quite a lot of analysis and and, and processing to try and get this data in orbit, so they took out these exposures that happened when it was over the South Atlantic anomaly, they modelled the hook which happens each orbit as the star kind of stabilises on the detector each each time. Um, they had two visits of the same star, which meant that, meant that the pointing changed during the middle of the transit, so they had to adjust for that and fit for a, a change in, in light to the star from that. And also to check other systematics, they looked at changes in, in another bright star in the field of view, and they didn't find any. And they also looked at whether the light curve from Kepler-1625 changed with wavelength, which would probably suggest there's something happening either with the star or there's something happening on the detector which is causing any any sort of wiggles and dips around. Um, and even after all of that processing, a dip at the end of their observations persisted. And it seemed consistent as well with the dip that they would have expected um, from their two, 2017 paper. And also somewhat interesting was that the planet's transit happened earlier than expected. It was 78 minutes, or about three times the uncertainty, sooner than, than, than they were expecting to see it, suggesting a hint of TTVs, and actually a hint of TTVs exactly where you would expect to find them, given a moon that transits after the planet. So that takes us from a candidate signal with three exomoon transits in Kepler to one with four transits um, and four across two different telescopes that also has TTVs. So. It's That sounds pretty good, right? Well, um, remember that quote from Kipping about one in four Kepler planets would have erroneously been concluded to harbour exomoons due to systematic noise in Kepler data? Well, when Tichy and Kipping looked at the reprocessed and approved Kepler data, um, that candidate moon signal they found two years ago basically disappeared. It went from from 4.1 sigma down to less than 2 sigma. And in fact, when they do their new model using both the Hubble data and the Kepler data, the Kepler data kind of avoid, or the, the, the model tries to basically avoid 
putting a transit of the moon in the Kepler data and instead puts the moon on this high inclination orbit that skims its star during one and only one of those Kepler transits. Um, so in some ways we went from a candidate with three transits and down to a candidate with one and a half. Um, and also I'd, I'd say it's not just Kepler which is the victim of these like correlated noise, these, these strange bumps in the light curve that can confuse us. Although I know that HST's Wide Field Camera 3 is an extremely stable instrument. I think I'm right in saying that, that 40 hours of continuously observing a faint target in just white light is kind of uncharted territory. Is, is that? That is, that is accurate, yeah. That's not something that we uh, tend to do for that long. Some phase curves have been observed at that kind of cadence, but this is, I think, still the longest one that's been done. It's why there's, yeah, no, and with there's phase normally curves, a break in it, like, like they've seen. So it's normally split at 13 orbits. Yeah. With phase curves as well, you kind of know the period you're looking for because you know the planetary period. In this case, any dip that they would have seen superimposed onto um, the light curve anywhere, anywhere in the 40 hours, they would have, it would have effectively been a candidate moon signal. So it didn't really matter where it happened or what period or what time scale. There was a dip and they claimed it was a moon. Um, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm, uh, I'm slightly skeptical. Um, but I think that given, well, if, if more data comes down from, from Hubble in the future and a, a, another such transit of this kind of potential Neptune-sized planet is found, then I would certainly happily call this not just a candidate but a detection. But at the moment, um, yeah, I'm not quite sold on the merits of this Kepler-1625bi, as I think it's it's been called. Um, yeah, I think we're, what, going, what are you I guys think we're think? going with Roman numerals after the small letter. Yes, the is that I or is that one? No, it's an I. I think okay. it's the same as what we do with our Galilean moons, as we, we use the Roman numerals. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I thought there was a different system, but I don't know. What did you think of the paper, Hannah? Because I know you have a lot of experience with HST data. Yeah, I mean, it's a really tough data set. I, uh, I have the whole data set. It's publicly available data, so anyone can get hold of that if they want it. Um, it's a lot of data, actually. I was quite surprised by just the sheer amount that was being used. Uh, I hadn't looked at it before. I hadn't looked into the observation plan. And we, we've talked about this before on Exocast, the fact that the when it was selected as a program, there was, you know, some journalists got hold of it and used that as leverage to write articles about exomoons and stuff. And I remember Alex Tichy dealing with that quite well, saying, you know, we don't know. We haven't looked at the data yet. It's not been acquired. So I remember all of that quite well. The, the data is complicated and they show that in the supplementary materials which go on for 66 pages or so looking at all of the potential combinations of things so you know I'm still very skeptical I'm always the skeptical one I'm happy being the skeptical one um, I want to see more data I don't currently believe that it's enough I don't currently feel like there's enough information in there to to pull out any of the distinct numbers. There, there's a lot of uncertainty on all of them. So I, I kind of, yeah, I think that's where I am at the moment. Highly skeptical, uh, but hopeful, because even if this isn't the candidate, I hope it you know spurs on the fact that, like you said at the beginning, moons are everywhere, the planets are everywhere. You know, people first thought, you know, there's hundreds of thousands and thousands of stars. They're the most numerous thing in the universe. That's not true. You know, planets around those stars, those become the most numerous. And then moons around those planets. So it's a matter of time. I don't know if we're there yet, but I, I hope it's the start of some interesting studies. Yeah. Another thing that kind of um, pushes me away from, from saying it's it's a... Uh, confirmed thing is just how weird the system is you know I know that that's kind of biased we're biased to what we know and what we expect <laughs> we all um, have but those. having a Neptune sized um, world around a Jupiter sized planet is very weird we've only seen that but in Star it, Wars haven't we sorry we've seen that in Star Wars that's as close as we oh, get really? to that I don't know <laughs> but it, to be fair it would be very fitting if Kepler 1625bi turns out to be the first moon because after hot Jupiters, when nobody expected to find these big planets close to their stars, we would have the exact same thing again, where nobody expects to find these big moons close to their planets. And yet, we might be proved wrong. How far apart did the, is it 
required for this moon to be from the giant planet. I mean, I think, I it think was it, a, we need about... to be clear that this planet is a giant planet. It's, it could be up to yes. 10 to 12 times the mass of Jupiter. It's a very large planet on the planet scale. Yeah, that's true. I think it's about six planet radii away, something like that. That's quite far away. We see planets orbiting closer to their stars than that, so I'm not entirely surprised by that combination in those numbers. Yeah. Um, I'm still kind of not convinced by that system, as you can hear, but also I'm not really convinced that the other techniques are capable of finding a good solid exomoon candidate in the next 10 years or so. Um, but I am pretty confident in 15 years we'll have found exomoons, and that's because WFIRST is launching. And even if WFIRST's imaging capability isn't good enough, the microlensing campaign that it's going to do in the late 2020s is going to be able to find effectively Galilean moons. Like Ganymede would be detectable by WFIRST nice. around wow. a Jupiter-sized planet. So at the end of the 2020s, as well as 100,000 microlensing planets, we'll probably have a few thousand exomoons to work with too. Well, Hugh, you mentioned cool. um, the uh, the Vandenberg paper, and I think in there they provided some estimates for um, what uh, the kind of radial velocity signal would be for a moon of this configuration. I think they said like 200 meters per second, which they posited might be detectable with future generations of uh, radial velocity instruments. Yeah, with with big ground-based telescopes, that's one way you could definitely do it with with ELTs and a decent spectrograph. Yeah, the race is on. It r hasn't been won yet. <laughs> okay, right. News time. Yes, uh, Hugh's right. It is news time, and moving on from uh, from exo moon news to uh, exoplanet news, I guess. Um, so I'll start off with uh, with some discoveries uh, that I, I trawled the uh, literature for uh, for the past couple of weeks, as Hannah did a very comprehensive search uh, for the last two months for the last show. Uh, so I came across uh, NG2S2b, uh, which is an inflated 0.7 Jovian mass hop Jupiter uh, on a 4.5 day orbit, which discovered uh, transiting a bright uh, F dwarf nearby. Uh, there was a couple of, uh, of Kepler planets, uh, like uh, K2263b, uh, uh, which is on a 50-day orbit. It's a, a sub-Neptune with uh, quite an Earth-like density, actually, of uh, about 5.7 grams per centimeter cubed, which uh, suggests maybe uh, a water or other volatile envelope, but uh, something interesting there, certainly. Um, the WASP uh, campaign is extremely prolific, and we have a whole handful uh, of WASP south planets uh, this month, including uh, WASP144b. Uh, WASP 145AB, 158B, 159B, 162B, 168B, 172B, and finally 173AB. Uh, so quite a, a quite a selection there. So the uh, the smallest of these new planets is about half a Jupiter mass, and the largest uh, is about five Jupiter masses. So all in the all in the large planet regime. Uh, we also have got some new uh, transit timing variations for the hot Jupiter Tres 5B, uh, which revealed a potential companion in the quarter Jupiter mass range. So that's kind of cool result. Uh, there was a, conf a confirmed detection of a hot super Earth called K2. 216b on a two-day orbit around a K-dwarf star. Uh, this is about 1.7 Earth radii in the 8 Earth mass range. So another interesting super-Earth to, uh, to study. Probably quite a warm one, though. Um, there were a huge handful of planets. Well, I shouldn't really call them a handful. 151 planet candidates orbiting <laughs> 141 stars were announced from the Vizier catalogue, which I don't know if either of you two are familiar with. That's a, a new one for me. Um, but this corresponded basically to K2 campaigns 5 to 8. Uh, and that team used follow-up from Keck's uh, high-res instrument. So this campaign also refined host star radii of 105 of those of those planets um, to the 10% precision, uh, which provides also improved planet radii, because uh, we know the difficulties of, uh, of, of getting correct radii when uh, you're using um, kind of the star's radius as well. So uh, that's a, a, a big leap, I think, in terms of uh, improving the, the radial um, Sorry, the radiuses of those particular planets. Uh, and finally, just um, just before we came on air, actually, I saw this uh, come into my inbox. Super interesting result. Uh, using the ELMA array, Cambridge University researchers report the discovery of an additional three large hot Jupiter-sized planets around a very young star, a T-Tauri star called CI Tau, uh, bringing the total tally of orbiting planets around that particular star to four, because there was one discovered a few years ago. 
Uh, so interestingly, uh, the furthest planet in the system, uh, on this you know, forming system, is three orders of magnitude more distant than the nearest planet. And these range from 0.1 to 100 AU from this two million year old star. It's still in the, you know, the stages of formation. So, uh, you know, at the stage, the existence of these planets are inferred from the observed gaps in the disk of the material, kind of like what he was talking about earlier with the detection of exomoons potentially. Um, but with improving technology, we'd probably be able to directly image planets of this size soon. Um, so the age and the clearly very dynamic uh, kind of formation environment of the star make it a pretty cool laboratory for you know, exploring how and where planets are made. So in terms of um, in characterization studies, I came across um, quite an interesting paper regarding WASP-31b this, uh, this month, and that there was a detected uh, a few years ago was a potassium feature uh, in the atmosphere of this, uh, of this planet, which was um, thought to be pretty interesting, but it wasn't seen in follow-up observations using VLT. Um, so here, um, with more follow-up uh, uh, observations using the HIRES UVES spectrograph on the VLTs to search for that particular feature, um, it wasn't found. So no, no, no potassium uh, for WASP-31b, um, and perhaps maybe a lesson about limitations uh, of our systematics. So I have a whole section here, uh, unfortunately, about safe modes. Um, it's been a <laughs> oh the safe mode section. Yeah, this, oh, yeah we have it yeah. every week. I think we're going to have to add that now every month. It's been a busy, uh, busy month for safe modes. Uh, and I'll start off with the Hubble Space Telescope, which is our favorite and most resilient on-orbit workhorse for astrophysics. It's fine. Everything's fine. Um, everything's fine, Hannah. Fine. I know it's all fine. Um, I'll start off with the fact that it is fine, but it did go into safe mode on October fifth. Um, uh, all of its instruments are still operational, everything's still fine, we're expecting to be producing science soon, um, but the core seems to be a failure of uh, one of the three gyroscopes that we used to point and stabilize the spacecraft, and this then triggered an auto-safe mode. So uh, Hubble is very expensive and very awesome, and it has very many redundancies. Uh, so one of the backup gyros, uh, which were installed during the final servicing mission back in 2009, actually also behaved anomalously when it was turned on, uh, returning a much higher rotation rate for the uh, telescope than was actually observed. So if the issue persists, uh, which it might not, uh, Hubble can continue to work effectively with just the one gyro, uh, but it, you know it's not going to be a life, uh, a mission-ending event, certainly, um, when we hope to get all three of those gyros working again pretty soon, because we all love HST. Yeah. Just to just to be clear on that, so Hubble has six gyroscopes. Uh, six three gyros. Of them Okay. Yeah, three of them are standard and three of them are extended. Um, and that just means that they have expected lifetimes that are slightly longer than the standard ones. Out of those six gyros, three of those uh, are now no longer working. Uh, the last one to decide not to work was gyro two, and that stopped working very recently. So they, they have now started up gyro three to try and get it into this three gyro mode which is what it's been running for the last uh, 20 28 years mm -hmm. and the gyro three has been the one that's acting anonymously uh, ah. they're they're trying to work that out we've got teams of people from space telescope uh, and goddard where it's all run from working on that uh, the the gyro babysitting as we call it and <laughs> and the idea is that you know, three gyro mode, which we've been operating on, gives us really fine pointing. Uh -huh. But to, if we no longer have three gyroscopes, we end up with just two of them. What we would do is we would enter into one gyro mode, which is still able to do fine pointing, just not extra fine pointing. So that would mean that we would have two gyroscopes, one active and one backup, which would allow the telescope to operate for many, many years to come. Yeah. Um, and, and another thing, Gyroscope 2, which was installed in 2009, they, they, it has a nominal lifetime of five years, uh, and it lasted twice that. So yeah. it's, uh, it's the little telescope that could. And, and I would say that while things are still underway, trying to work out and trying to make sure that everything's good, uh, it's, it's, in my opinion, we've still got a telescope that's going to be kicking around for a while. Oh yeah, I, I don't think anyone thinks that uh, these are going to be mission-ending events, but they're certainly significant events, and uh, just to hope we can get it sorted out one way or the other pretty soon, and get back to science. Yep. exactly. 
Uh, so continuing the safe mode section, unfortunately, uh, just one day after the after Hubble went into uh, safe mode, um, Chandra, uh, NASA's X-ray observatory, also entered safe mode, which isn't great. Um, however, normal operations resumed on the 15th when it was confirmed it was a bad gyro. It's always the gyro. Um, actually, no, it was bad gyro data that led to incorrect uh, spacecraft momentum calculations, and then this auto caused an auto uh, safe mode. Uh, I think things are back uh, back on track now. Um, and Chandra is, of course, also nine years beyond its extended 10-year mission, which was also extended. So it's, uh, it's doing very well. <laughs> uh, so one spacecraft that we're now growing pretty accustomed to spending a little time in safe mode every now and then is, uh, is Kepler. And as uh, Hannah noted on the last show, the, you know, the, this very resilient spacecraft woke up again last month. Uh, so campaign 19, which was the, uh, the, the most recent campaign, uh, started at the end of August and ended on October 1st. And was interesting for a number of reasons, but for us, uh, it also included observations of TRAPPIST-1, which could provide some interesting results. Um, the DSN downlink of the campaign 9 data was reported completed successfully, according to the website. Uh, and the Kepler team are now monitoring the health of the spacecraft. And there are plans to attempt campaign 20. Uh, if if it proves that everything's okay, but it seems likely that there's going to be some significant uh, degradation of the pointing during during campaign 19, uh, which could mark the end of the data collection um, aspect of the K2 mission. Uh, but we'll have to just wait and see. Uh, the data from campaign 18 are expected very soon as well. Yeah, so K2 was in safe mode for about two thirds of its last campaign. So. <laughs> Um, but luckily, it wasn't for the downlink. Yes, which is very. Yeah, nice. I was keeping keeping an eye on the uh, on the updates because um, it it just said downlink was initiated, but then didn't get any more for a couple of days. But it seems like it all went successfully. Um, so we'll um, we'll have to see what that looks like when it comes out in a couple of months. Um, but back here on Earth, uh, the second of a series of hotly anticipated NAS reports. Well, you know as hotly anticipated as National Academy of Science reports can be, um, uh, you know, was published. Uh, this was on NASA's astrobiology strategy. So for people who aren't familiar, when a new um, administration comes into power, they task the uh, National Academy of Sciences with, uh, with kind of doing an overview or a uh, kind of review of where NASA is at this at this stage, kind of as a third party. Um, and then, you know, they'll take this as a, as a kind of direction document. So they're quite important, um, um, quite important documents. Uh, and the primary finding of this one is that NASA should support research on a broader range of biosignature uh, and environment and environmental research uh, and incorporate the field of astrobiology into all stages of future exploratory missions. So no surprise there. We need more astrobiology everywhere. <laughs> um, the full report, which is uh, also available online, emphasizes that that latter point especially. Uh, and highlights that collaborations with private or international space organizations and agencies, uh, as well as strong interdisciplinary and cross-divisional approaches, especially at NASA, uh, will be crucial for meeting the goal of getting more integrated astrobiology into everything. Um, so particular science goals that were highlighted included distinguishing between abiotic features and, um, and actual biosignatures, uh, the continued and expanded uh, study of energy-limited uh, chemolitho-autotrophic communities. These are ones that, you know, don't use that much light and metabolize using uh, various different compounds or they're just destroying the rock itself, very cool organisms, and also those in the subsurface, in the subsurface, sorry, um, as these, you know, reveal the kind of thermodynamics or the biochemical limits uh, of terrestrial life, which can tell us a lot about life itself. But um, I think the headline news uh, for this month is the return of ExoCup. It's back. Woo! It's back. And it starts on November 5th. Mark your calendar. November 5th, uh, 2018 will be the first round uh, of ExoCup. And I can't personally, guys, believe it's been a year already since Kepler-10b was crowned champion of exoplanets during... I know, right? It was a very heated runoff, wasn't it? Uh, and commiserations again to GJ1214b. Um, so I think 12 months is enough to heal those fractures and those, those feuds. <laughs> they might have cooled down. Um, and we'll since then... The Twitterverse handles it. Yeah. yeah. Well, at least we're going for a different uh, array of planets. At least Exactly. We've made, the we've made a few changes. Um, so we've got different planets and we've also made changes to how the, uh, the brackets are going to run. Um, so we took some feedback from our listeners and those, uh, those on Twitter as well. We now have two brackets, a transiting bracket, which includes all your fantastic photometric favorites, such as WASP-39b and Pyments ac as well as a non-transiting bracket for those diehard direct images who prefer, for example, 51PEG. 
Um, so this gives us 16 planets in total and promises to set us up for a super exciting final. Um, if you're not sure which planet to pick, well, you know, we have our limited edition Exo Cup cards, which will be making a return this year, uh, and each will provide a snapshot overview of uh, various competitors to help you make your decision. Um, and we also, of course, expect that there'll be many more reasons to vote or not to vote for any given planet um, will <laughs> appear on the Twitter threads that accompany the polls. Or so we hope. Yeah, I'm hoping that that poetry competition comes back again. Oh, wow. I completely even forgot to mention that. We, we that should... was my favourite aspect inspire that for every planet oh you guys are gonna have to come up with some poems then because i'm terrible at them okay i could um we could start with some haikus start Do with some, some haikus. Uh, exoplanet haikus and thieves like that starts things off i've yeah. always been more of a dr zeus rhyming kind of person <laughs> that's good as well there's no uh, there's no right way to do poetry which is a great thing about humanities <laughs> right <laughs> Well, I'm excited to see what the community comes up with and, and getting everybody else really interested in it. We had great following last year and I'm, I'm really hoping that we can bring it off. Uh, and this final where we've got a transiting versus non-transiting planet, I think it's going to be quite fun. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, although we, we all know transiting's going to win. So. No, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> we'll see. We have to see what the non-transiting bracket comes It is up. if I have my way. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> Hugh is biased. Yeah, Hugh already is the bias is sneaking. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> probably I shouldn't be biased as an organiser, but you know. Nah, we well, can't help it. We were we were considering our uh, you know making some predictions, but thinking about how incorrect we were last time round, we decided against so it. So badly what, wrong. What did we predict last time? Um... I know my predictions weren't correct, whatever they were. So um, I think I think I went Proxima, which yeah, is close. I think I went Proxima too. I think I might have popular, gone popular at the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, we shall see. Um, and I think the planets that have uh, that have made it into the this competition or the competition for this year are each very interesting for their own reasons. And I think that will help to illustrate the wide diversity of planets and the wide diversity of how we go about finding those planets too. So um, it should be exciting, exciting month. And it all starts again on November 5th. So mark your I, I think it's important to, to finally point out that the, the winner of last year's will be in there to try and defend its title. It's uh, so... Oh yeah, Kepler 10B will be back. Uh, first, the first heats are gonna be interesting on themselves. I'm, Oh man, this mm. is going to yeah, be Yeah, we have mess. some interesting matchups. No spoilers right now, but we have some interesting matchups, even in the first round. Um, so yeah, it, it, I'm yeah. sure it'll be an exciting, exciting competition. And uh, with that, the most important and exciting news, uh, that's it for the month. It is that time of the show when we adopt a new planet into our Exocast weird and wacky family. And it's up to our guests to adopt those planets. So Sarah, what planet have you chosen to add to the Exocast family? Well, you know me, Hannah, that I don't like to follow instructions very well. So yeah. I think that I would like to adopt <laughs> Titan, which I am, I am, uh, I, I am sure is neither an neither an extrasolar nor a planet. Um, <laughs> just to make sure that I'm as difficult as possible. Sure. Yeah. We do have the Earth in there. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that I felt like that was justifiable. I saw Earth on the list, and I was like, well, it doesn't have to be an exoplanet, apparently. It doesn't have to be a planet either, apparently. <laughs> Go on. Why, why have you chosen Titan? I, I'm sure no one's surprised, but let us know anyway. <laughs> I, feel, I mean, I feel it's like a little bit too on the nose, actually, for me. But I have a good reason. So um, I think that uh, Titan's really important. And actually, I think the, the Saturn system, now that we know um, some of the results from Cassini, um, are going to be really important for exoplanets. And... The reason for that is that, um, you know, at least for the the foreseeable future, we're not going to have um, the ability to actually send missions to exoplanets. And so we're going to be relying on, you know, um, remote sensing observations from ground-based telescopes and from, you know, these great space observatories like Hubble and James Webb. And, um, you know, with Saturn and with Titan, we have those types of, of measurements. We've been looking at Titan with Hubble since Hubble launched. Um, you know, we use ALMA. We use those same resources to study that system. But we also sent a spacecraft there that spent, you know, 14 years there taking measurements, um, both remote sensing and, um, you know, directly sampling the atmospheres, looking at the surface of Titan and all of these things. And 
one of the things that we learned that I think is really important, which is my actual reason for always talking about the system with, with people who really focus on exoplanets, is how much things matter that we can't actually see very well um, remotely. And in the case of, of Titan, and it turns out Saturn too, um, there are external fluxes to both of those atmospheres that we didn't know about until Cassini. And so there's water, um, oxygen ions flowing into the top of Titan's atmosphere that come from Enceladus, the tiny moon of Saturn that has plumes of water shooting out of the South Pole. Um, and uh, actually there's a, a huge contribution we know now to Saturn's atmosphere from um, its rings. And, um, you know, both of those things are really affecting the atmospheric composition of both Saturn and Titan. And so actually the fourth most abundant molecule in Titan's atmosphere, which is carbon monoxide, is the result of, of the plumes of Enceladus. And so, you know, for 30 years, we were looking at these composition measurements that showed that Titan's atmosphere was not in equilibrium. We couldn't figure out why. Um, and eventually, you know, came to find out that there was this, this source of material that we didn't know about. And so I think that, um, you know, Titan is a little bit of a cautionary tale uh, in terms of understanding an atmosphere. Because if you don't know what the top boundary condition is, if you don't know what is coming in from the outside, you might see things in the atmosphere that you think are the result maybe of life um, or volcanism or something like that, that that aren't, that they're actually coming from, you know, some tiny moon shooting water into the atmosphere or, you know, even in the case of the Jovian system with Io dumping sulfur onto Europa. And so, you know, if we don't know about these connections, um, it will be easy to go astray. Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to know about a lot of those types of things for exoplanets. We just don't have the capabilities yet. And so um, I just like us to remember, um, you know, that we have learned these things from the solar system and that, you know, we know what Titan looks like from Hubble. Um, we actually have Kepler measurements of Titan. And um, so we just need to remember, remember these things in the back of our minds um, when, when those, you know, first beautiful spectra come down from James Webb and we start thinking about what that really means um, in terms of what these atmospheres are doing. So that's why I wanted to adopt Titan and also just because I like Titan and also because I don't like following directions. <laughs> all, all three are great reasons. Like, that was yeah. a great choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, Titan. Neither an extrasolar or a planet piece of that exoplanet, exocast family. Uh, thank you again, Sarah, for, for that. And uh, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, yeah, Sarah. Yeah, no problem. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining All us. Right. Well, that's it for this month's show. Uh, thank you again to our special guest, Sarah Hurst, and to all of you for joining us for another installment of Exocast. We will return next month with more exciting exoplanetary news and views, results from the ExoCup, if we're still here and standing and emotionally able to talk about them. Um, and I will also be joined by a special guest in the ExoCast virtual studio. Um, so again, don't forget, ExoCup starts November 5th. Get your facts ready, tell your friends, make sure your gyroscopes are well-serviced, and vote for your favorite planet, of course. <laughs> Uh, until next time, you can check out all our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, uh, and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast and like us on Facebook, of course. Until then, bye-bye. Bye. 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 Exocast.